This is Transistor.fm. Hey everyone, welcome to Build Your SaaS. This is the behind the scenes story of building a web app in 2020. I'm John Buda, a software engineer. And I'm Justin Jackson. I do product and marketing. Follow along as we build Transistor.fm. And today, Justin, we have a special guest. What? Yeah. Who, who do we, we have? Do. Uh, Dave Junta. Junta. <laughs> I had a feeling that was going to happen. Yeah, nice. <laughs> Welcome, Dave. Thanks for having me. You are more popular than John and I combined on this show. That is a horrible travesty. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, and folks at home i can actually see dave right now he is a real person he is not a ghost or a spirit i mean he has lots of spirit but he is he's not even wearing a mask like we get to see this is like unveiling uh banksy wow (laughs) it's like unveiling banksy uh daft punk just keep going that's great no, no pressure whatsoever. That's good. <laughs> Isn't the Masked Singer a new show on TV? Yeah, yeah. This about? is like our version of the Masked podcast. Did Daft Punk get unmasked? Is that is that something I heard? I don't know. They showed up at the Grammys and won an award in masks, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. But then someone told me that people knew who they were now, which kind of made me. I think people I, know I, who they are. There's some French guys. With, I mean, they have. I mean, I think people know who they are. They just never think, show up in public. Okay, so there's. You think there's in France, people kind of know who they are. I think so. Yeah. Okay. Really. Yeah. Interesting. Hey, if you're French and listening right now, let me know if you know who those guys are. <laughs> um. So we. Why do we have Dave on the show, John? Besides the fact that well, this is like I'll, we could end right here, and this would already be our most popular yeah. episode. <laughs> Done. Yeah, I thought I thought it would be really I thought it would be interesting to have Dave on because well, a number of reasons. So, Dave's been working with Home Chef for a number of years, which is a, f- a food delivery service. Uh, I don't know if you're only in, only in the U.S. Right, Dave? You're only in the lower forty-eight. Yes. Okay. Um, well, stop. What's the lower lower? So we don't go to Alaska or Hawaii. Oh, okay. So we basically only... The lower 48. Yeah, we deliver to anywhere that FedEx will deliver within two um, two days shipping from our three okay. uh, production facilities across the country. Interesting. Okay. So yeah, you've been there since day one, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And you're not necessarily software as a service, but you are a subscription service, more like food as a service or something, food delivery as a service. Uh, um, FDAS. So I think... I think it, yeah, I think it would be I think it would be interesting to kind of hear what it's been like to work from you know day one in a super small company to where it's at now, and also obviously given the current situation, like what you're noticing with food delivery and food supply chain with everything going on with with COVID nineteen and um, oh, yeah stuff like that. I think that would be pretty interesting. So I, I actually met the founder. Uh, I. For a while there, I was um, I was a mentor at one of the early coding bootcamp things, like where people go to like learn how to code. And they, it's like, you know, I think the one that I was working with was three months. It was called the Starter League, and um, the way there the cool thing about that program was that they assigned a one to one relationship between every student to us to a 
mentor. Um, so yeah. every time there would be a new co- a new cohort, I would get uh, assigned like here's the you know one to three people that I'm going to be mentoring for that quarter. And um, so the founder guy uh, went to that boot camp and got assigned me as his mentor. Um, so I basically oh, no yeah, I watched. Uh, so his name is Pat Vitalik. Uh, he um, he was in finance, I want to say something like something investment. Um, and I, I actually. As I recall, it was something about like um, working with, uh, I don't know, it may have been like Series B or C or something like that, startups though, prepping them to go raise another round of funding. So like watching them like prepare their business, design their their pitch for funding. Um, and so I think he's got, he's got a very like sort of investory finance kind of mind. And I think he watched so many startups go through the or like expose their books to him so that he could like do their prep work and go like, Oh my God, what are these people doing? Um, just, you know, and I, I should also say like, uh, he was, he's a Midwestern guy. He grew up in, I want to say Indiana or Michigan. And, um, but he was working out in California. So I think he was seeing a lot of like tech startups, tech companies that were like getting into their second or third raise. Um, and I think, you know, he, he came from, from, I think management consulting. And so I think he had like a pretty good picture of um, like, what is a good, what is a healthy business supposed to look like? And what does it usually look like? And how are they getting money? Um, So I think that was his. And were you you mentoring him? Were you mentoring him? Like, is this like Ruby on Rails Mm -hmm. mentoring or? Okay. So, so this is, uh, I heard, cause I think Jason Freed was talking about this. This is, uh, starter school in Chicago. And it was like, you could go and learn Ruby on Rails. And you're one of the mentors there. And this fellow shows up ostensibly to learn Ruby on Rails. Correct. So that program actually had three things. They taught taught, uh, design, they taught front-end development and back-end development. And you could sort of like pick your track. This dude did all three of them at once. Wow. Um, okay. So he was basically like <laughs> jacked in full time. Um, and I was his mentor assigned for the, for the back end development one, the Ruby on rails one. Um, but we just got to be really good friends. Um, and so like shortly after he graduated the class, he like, he was trying to think about what he would go do next. And um, I, I actually went and looked up some old emails. He was looking at like buying a food production company out in the suburbs and um, decided, you know what? Like, I think this would be better if I just built it myself. There's like not enough there to warrant continuing on that path. So uh, I think I'm going to buy it myself. I think I'm going to build it myself. And I was like, shit, rock on, go do it. That's amazing. Yeah. So I was sort of a, I was a presence in the sense that I was around. I watched him build it. He reached out to me several times, like asking for advice. There's several bad decisions that I uh, suggested to him that are still in the code base and (laughs) have tormented the dev team that I run. You know, for this, that is ultimate uh, mentor accountability. Right oh there. yeah, totally. <laughs> but uh, that's just that's just software development, right? Like, uh, uh, you know, every time you make a, a development decision, you're you're basically screwing yourself at some point later down the road. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely feel that. Yeah. <laughs> um, just to just to pause right yeah. there. So this is this this guy is a finance guy. What was his name Pat again? Vitalik. Pat. Okay, so Pat's a finance guy. Why the heck did he decide to go into food production? Um, 
It's an interesting. It's an interesting question. I I honestly don't know if I could give you like the full story. My understanding is that he grew up either in in fairly rural, um, like I said, Indiana or Michigan. I think his grandfather had a um, a farm, so he was sort of, sort of like very close to food production in a, in a very specific kind of way. But the truth is, he watched uh, companies like Blue Apron um, and HelloFresh. Like both of those companies had existed, or like they were had started and been around right around this time. And I think he was looking at them going like, oh, maybe, maybe I could do something like that. And then, like I said, he found this other, this other food production facility or company out in the suburbs. And he was like, oh, maybe I can turn that business into, you know, uh, I can grow that business into being a competitor to HelloFresh or Blue Apron or something like that. Um, yeah. So it's interesting too, being pretty Midwestern, uh, we have definitely taken on that, um, that mentality for a long time. Uh, I think Home Chef was one of the first meal kit companies to get to profitability. Um, we've taken, uh, you know, by most accounts, the least amount of of investment, like outside investment. Um, and then last year we were sold to, um, or purchased, I guess, by acquired, I guess, maybe is the right terminology, um, to Kroger, which is a large grocery store company in the United States. And so that was, wow, maybe like 18 months to two years, going on, coming close to two years now um, since we've been... It says May 23rd. Yes, there you go. 2018. Right. There wow. you go. 200 mil is what it says here. Do you do you want to update the Crunchbase profile right now <laughs> on air? <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that's above, that's like a couple levels above my pay grade on that one. Uh, so okay. I'll go ahead and leave... <laughs> leave that one alone um so what, yeah. when was it when was it started originally uh, i think pat started in like 2014 and from my understanding not many of those companies are profitable right i mean it it doesn't um like the other ones i blue apron's been having a hard time for sure um yeah. i think HelloFresh mm-hmm. has done pretty good for the last um year or so last couple quarters um they've been doing well um but yeah, you know the meal kit business has been an interesting one in that I, I, maybe it's like any any sort of uh, sector where like you know there, there's an interesting novel idea at first. Um, you get a bunch of people who come in and try and like figure it out, and then they uh, the competitors <laughs> explode, and then they contract, right? Um, and so yeah. we definitely went through that same kind of cycle. Interestingly, like I said, uh, being fairly midwestern, we. Um, have never really, we've always been like this, the third ish, um, meal kit service in the country and, Mm -hmm. and sort of like proudly third that, that third position, I think allowed us to be, um, smarter with our money, a little bit more responsible with what we were doing. It allows us, allowed us to grow at a little bit more of a sustainable pace. What the like city of big shoulders, like Chicago sort of like way might be the like, you know, put your head down, kind of grind it out a little bit and uh, focus on the work and not on the flesh. Yeah, that's interesting. That in some ways that's kind of what where transistor is. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there is something do, do you know who Rodney Mullen is? That is he the, I, the, he's the CEO of Kroger, right? No. No, Rodney, Rodney Mullen, Mullen the, skateboarder. the skateboarder. No. That's funny. I are the CEO of Kroger's name is Rodney something. I thought, and okay. I think it actually is with an M. Weird. We can cut that part out, right? Rod, Rod, yeah. <laughs> no, no, Chris, keep that part in. Uh, Rodney 
has this great saying, which is, you know, he was climbing the skateboard ranks in the 80s and he got to number one. And then he said, you know, you only get to number one once. You only kind of win once. And after that, you're just playing defense. So he got to number one and then all he worried about was playing defense. And for him, it sucked the life out of skateboarding. He didn't enjoy it anymore. And you kind of see this in any any company that's kind of number one. Uh, and in our field, it's Libsyn. And they just have to be so much more conservative because they don't want to do anything too crazy and lose their base. They don't want to rock the boat too much, but they're constantly fending off their competitors, right? Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like, yeah, if you're number one, you've got a target on you. But if you're number two or three or four, and it's a fairly good industry, you can kind of sit there and, you know, just kind of work away. You don't have to spend a lot of money defending your position. It's interesting because the way you just described it sounded a little like, um, like taking it easy. I might say that there that it's less about taking it easy and more like um, having an opportunity to do better work because you aren't putting a bunch of pressure on you. Not and not just better, but like more fulfilling, maybe. Yeah. Um, the ability to really enjoy enjoy the work, you know. Yeah. And so obviously you've been with uh, Home Chef for a while. How, how long have you been there now? So, like I said, I was there right at the very beginning. I watched him. I watched Pat build the first thing, and then, but I was contracting um, separately, and so I missed maybe like the first year or so, year and a half of Pat building the company. I was just sort of like an outside, um, occasional interloper, um, but then yeah. I joined in um, 2016. See, this is like this. Is, and how many people work there now? So the company, so we have like sort of two answers to that, right? We have the office staff, like oh, the people yeah. who are like the, the corporate people, uh, of which one of I am one of, um, and that were um, a few hundred. Um, and then we have our okay. production facility, like the people who work in the plants and pack all that stuff. And of that, we have a couple thousand. Um, and, okay. Yeah. Wow. All right. And maybe for... <laughs> and when you joined, it was how big? Uh you know, I actually don't know what the production facility size was when I was there. But the office staff, we were like less than 30, 30, 35, maybe somewhere in okay. there. Okay. Um, so it's at least tripled since you've been there, oh, the yeah, office yeah, yeah. staff. Absolutely. Actually, the dev team alone, when I joined, I was the, the we had a CTO um, that Pat had hired. Shortly before I started, it came it came on full time, and then we had they had a um, another boot camp grad who was like uh, another guy who went to the same boot camp. Actually, I referred him to Pat. Uh, so like the dev team was really small. I was like number three um, on a contract basis for a while, and then we we sort of like gradually built up. We sort of quickly got to six, and then and then took a, a very gradual grow growth. And right now we're about thirty five including managers. Okay. Wow. All right. Have you ever worked for a company that big, John? No, never. Yeah, me neither. So never. that, I mean, that's one question I have is like, do you like it? Have you liked mm. it? Um, <laughs> Can you talk about that? 
<laughs> it's an interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Like the the size alone kind of scares me. I had one other like super large company experience. I worked at Discover Card for um, I think three years or so. And so working in a credit card company, a Fortune 500, super corporate, this is definitely different than that. And we're not, we're not really at that scale either. Um, so from, in some ways, we still feel scrappy relative to that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, like some of the things that I, I know the exec team, um, it's, I think we've only lost one exec post the, um, post the acquisition, so like it's it's a lot of the original mm. people who've been around for like the longest time uh, that are still involved. So like everybody at the in the top portion of the company remembers this time when we were super small and like how that felt, the way the company operated, the kinds of choices that we would make, um, like trying to move quickly and be scrappy and um, and so we a lot of that same discussion happens a lot right now. Um, we're constantly trying to, even yeah, though we've still. gotten really big and our processes are complicated and, um, and there's a lot of impediment to moving fast that we've like just, that have just sort of ossified around us, you know? I mean, one of the reasons I ask is because one of the topics I've been exploring lately on the show is like, this is called build mm. your SAS. And clearly like, that's just a, uh, a means of getting the life that you want. Mm. And I think because there are so many bad companies and um, bad bosses and, uh, you know, just not great setups for folks, a lot of people are looking to start their own software company, build their own thing. And, but <laughs> increasingly, I'm just like, I I mean, I've kind of always known this, but the, not everybody is going to be able to build a profitable company. And also, <laughs> depending on what you want, what outcome you want, like if you just want to have meaningful work and a decent salary and good work-life balance, sometimes the best thing for people to do might be to just get a job or negotiate a raise or uh, do consulting work, but just for better clients. And I, I talked a little bit about this with Marie Poulin, and so, yeah, I think getting <laughs> getting other people's perspectives on the show is good because even though we're kind of focused on building our own thing, I think sometimes people need to <laughs> think again about the outcome they want and then work backwards and go, okay, what is actually the, the, the most e- efficient or the best or the most likely way for me to get there? And, you know... I think there's going to be some folks that are just always like, I need to build my own thing. But other people, like the <laughs> the best life for them is to just find a great place to work or what have you, you know? I think, we, I think people also um, discount things too quickly. Like they make some assumptions about like, oh, a big company or a company of XYZ size is not going to be able to be, to fulfill the life that I think it can. Um, but the truth is like companies are just people and people are malleable, uh, until we build a whole bunch of systems and, and rely on them to like box us in. But, you know, a good manager can make a shitty job feel fantastic, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. Yeah. And I, (laughs) I guess, I mean, I haven't worked for a company that big, but you know, I've, 
I've uh, worked for agencies, mm -hmm. right? And that's an experience. And I've worked for startups and that's an experience. My experience overall has not been like incredible. Like there's been a few maybe standouts that were that were pretty good, but my experience as an employee was never like, you know, I just, <laughs> this is mm -hmm. the best. My friend Jathan in, in Kamloops has often told me like, well, maybe you just had bad bosses. Like that's, <laughs> that's just all there is to it. And so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm willing to concede that, but overall, it just seems that there's a lot like corporate America could do a lot more. <laughs> they have a lot more work to do there, you know, to actually making jobs that are fulfilling to making, treating people like humans to uh, giving them some autonomy. And maybe some of this is personality based too. I just like, I just did not like asking somebody if I could go on vacation. <laughs> mm -hmm. It just <laughs> bugs me. Or like, you know, having to say in Slack, like, hey, I'm going, like, I don't want to tell people where I'm going, you know, like, just, I don't, that, I, I didn't like that idea that, that my boss somehow became my, I guess my boss. <laughs> right. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, I mean, maybe this is, there's two sides to this coin. There's the personality of the employee, and then there's also the, the culture of the, the company, Right. But you would say that your experience has been pretty good. Like, do you get, do you have, uh, like, do you do a lot of greenfield development? Do you, you get to, do you get to get, do some, some of that stuff? Let's be clear. Uh, it's more of a liability for me to be writing code these days than, uh, mm. so like I, I'm, I'm fully uh, pulled out into management at this point. Um, gotcha. So the team um, we, we have a pretty good mix, I would say, uh, of some new stuff that we build. Um, it's, it's interesting being in the tech team at a company that is ostensibly a manufacturing company. Um, mm -hmm. there's a bunch of dynamics that, that are honestly really great, like, especially relative to building a product where the product is the tech. Like there's so much more mm -hmm. pressure and um, and risk that comes with every single line of code that you write. Whereas while we, of course, we have a customer facing website and a mobile app and like all of that stuff, um, the a very large chunk of what we build is for our internal team. It's you know products for our culinary team, products for our production yeah. associates, that kind of stuff. The, that internal stuff is like it's high risk in the sense that a lot of the business rides on it. Mm -hmm. But it's like you can physically see and talk to your stakeholders. You can watch what happens when you push something out. If there's um, if there's a failure, it's like yeah, I guess I guess there's more stuff that we built lately that was like it's a critical thing that needs to get that needs to be up, and we need to have processes in place in order to make sure that they are and they stay up. But you know, the stress level of operating that type of technology is way lower in my experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, partly because any feedback you get is hopefully going to come through internal channels right. as opposed to someone uh, blasting you on uh, Twitter or something. That's right. That was my experience with, with Black Box too when I worked there was, was, you know, we were building software, but really it was a... It was infrastructure for... It was infrastructure. Yeah, it was... Uh, right. So yeah, it, Black Box was, you know, a fulfillment company with software behind the scenes, but really most of the stuff we built, right, was internal or our team to manage all these shipments and warehouses and some of the software was for the warehouses. 
Um, mm. Actually, w- while we're while we're on this topic, while I've got two fulfillment people on the on the line here, <laughs> can we diverge for just a second? Because we're in the middle of this coronavirus uh, pandemic, and one of the things that I've been honestly spending too much time on <laughs> away from Transistor is thinking about local retailers, local restaurants, all this stuff, and what kind of world we're going to live in after this. You know, there's a couple of, the world could go back to the way it was before. That seems unlikely. And so, you know, as I'm thinking through, okay, what does the, what does Main Street look like after this is done? And, and how, and how do we live in a future where uh, Jeff Bezos just doesn't own everything? What do you guys think about you know, is there, are there opportunities? Like one idea I had was maybe retailers, local retailers need to be banding together and doing their own warehousing and delivery. Um, uh, what, you know, there's, there's talk now about maybe more cloud kitchens, maybe cloud kitchens is going to be the no, the new restaurant that people start. Do you two have either any thoughts around that stuff about how like post COVID Maybe there's a chance for independent businesses to come back and leveraging some of this technology that's, you know, that you guys have worked with in the past? Or is it too hard? Is it too big? Does it have to be centralized? You guys both... Just a, just a, a hard... A hard Thinking. Yeah. The, gears are, the gears are moving. Here's my, my, my initial take at that is maybe. Um, the warehousing... Moving physical product is a capital-expensive activity. It's mm-hmm. the sort of thing that, um, like, you you need investment in order to do. Like, you um, maybe, like, so the idea of, like, getting a bunch of smaller folks to come together and maybe they, do, they like, pool their warehousing and do it together is an interesting idea. But it also is... It's like you have to spread that risk of the massive capital expense expenditure that you're going to put out to like rent that kind of space, um, and mm-hmm. the employee size is like a very different kind of employee than you're looking for to go work in a plant in like a fulfillment center than the kind of thing that you're looking for when you're like gonna you know you're hiring somebody to work you know the front of desk or whatever in your in your um, coffee shop or something like that. Yeah. I, I just wonder. See, and this is the this is where my I'm naive is like the model in a lot of cases has been set, like you 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 folks have a centralized production facility. We have three of them across the country. And so the the question I'm asking, which could be again completely naive, is like retailers all have stock, and in there is a potential world where if I go to order a screwdriver at Bill's hardware store and he doesn't have it, Shopify automatically recommends Tom's hardware store, which is just right next door. Bill gets a little affiliate commission for it. I buy it from Tom and it gets shipped out. And so the, the, the storage is distributed uh, as opposed to centralized. Hmm. And certainly you don't get some economies of scale there, but I guess that the question in my head is, because I've run retail shops before. I run a couple of snowboard shops in my early 20s. And, you know, we would have, I don't know, 
200 pairs of shoes. We would have, you know, 20 snowboards. We'd have probably 100 skateboard decks. But all of that inventory is just siloed. There's no way for the, there's no network effect. And so I'm wondering, do retailers already have enough stock that if it was networked together and if there was, if the technology was there, like if they were all, uh, like if Blackbox was a distributed platform instead of a, a centralized platform for a warehouse or whatever, is there a world where they could kind of leverage that network effect and compete? Because now all of a sudden they have way more inventory. Maybe. I mean, I think Blackbox was attempting to do that, but we mm. never really got to it. Um, do you think I could get a job at Blackbox now? <laughs> I, I don't think they're hiring. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's tough. I mean, it, there's so many, I, I don't know, so many questions come to mind when I think about that. Is like, if you order from Bob's hardware, but it's only available at Tom's hardware, does Tom have the, st- the staff on hand to actually pack it and ship it? And what if there's a huge influx of orders, then everything's just going to be super delayed if it's not centralized at one place that is just for shipping. So it seems like there needs to be a huge change of people's consumption habits in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think people, people have gotten very used to the ease of ordering on Amazon and having everything come in a day or two. Yeah, I think those, those expectations I mean, have to be like, scaled back. Hasn't, isn't this basically Amazon? Like Amazon has that, right? Any, anybody can make a store and sell on Amazon um, exactly the same kind of like effect that you're describing where, you know, some it's out from one seller, but it's available from another one. The, the, the thing to build is the competitor to Amazon, right? Like the marketplace that aggregates all these people together, it just doesn't feel so bad. Well, and there's other thoughts too, which is, and it would be interesting to know how, um, how uh, home chef did this. Cause you, you must've had to have a local test mm-hmm. first, but traditionally with tech platforms, we always think centralized, right? It's Amazon Web Services and everyone uses that. It's Amazon's uh, logistics and distribution and warehousing and everybody uses that. It's Uber and that's it. Like it's it's winner take all. And there is maybe another paradigm, which is on the local level, can small independent shops actually band together and um, create something that's viable that is actually works, right? So let's just say in my dream world, and Chicago's great for this because Chicago's one of these places, Portland's one of these places. There's some of these places where there's really independent kind of scrappy bootstrapper uh, spirit, right? You've got all these local shops, and they they band together and they form a delivery co-op that is has you know electric vehicles and whatever and they figure out how to staff it they figure out how to you know make all this work the technology piece is the is the crucial part like if you could make the technology if you could compete on platform the same way that Amazon like with Amazon you could almost do it cuz then an order comes in people get in the habit of supporting local right Maybe there's a local portal. Maybe you just go to any retailer, and if they don't have it, they recommend it from someone else. And then there's a guy on an e-bike that's at your house in 15 minutes. Wow. 
And so now you're so now you're faster than Amazon. Now, of course, I this is this is just like this is the kind of these are how all of John and I product. <laughs> how do you how do you put the seventy five inch TV on an e bike, <laughs> Justin? Uh, I mean, I see, I, there might be some Priuses in there too. Who knows? My question is, how are you going to keep the big people from coming on there, onto that into that platform? How are you going to keep so that it's even just take the seventy inch TV example, right? Um, how do you keep how do you keep Best Buy? Like the moment you create a market a marketplace like this is. Like you said, winner take all. I think it's winner starves all. Mm-hmm. Like as soon as that big fish notices another channel, another opportunity to like jump in and and this is a way to to capture some market share. Oh, and there's a bunch of local like um, I think that would be that might be your larger challenge, right? So what's the difference? Is it is the difference margins? Because in the podcast industry we, again, John and I almost have an advantage over all of our competitors, mostly because we're just two people. And, and so we can, we're, we're treated by customers on par with Libsyn and Simplecast and whoever else is big, right? Um, you know, I, I was in New York, Spotify invited me to their head headquarters, just the same as everybody else, right? And uh, they're like, so it's just, the two of you, hey, it's like, yeah, it's just the two of us. And uh, <laughs> is it is is there some markets like is podcasting just one of those niche markets where the big people don't want to play, and so we're protected? Like email marketing was kind of like this, right? Like Google never wanted to not never wanted to compete with Mailchimp, and so Mailchimp kind of had this, you know, they could just kind of operate. But are there some markets? It seems like it's a lot easier for markets like that, like podcasting and email newsletters, because there's no interaction with the physical world. Like that mm. that's where things get tough. And then like Dave said, you need a lot of capital. Like I don't you probably could not have done Home Chef without investment money. Yeah, I think it'd be really hard. Right. I mean, I think it'd be almost impossible. And it's because of like where do you invest the money? Is it all in uh, production and warehousing and logistics? I mean, yeah, the answer there is for sure. But I think it's more like you invest in um, the capability of doing something more efficiently. So like one of the, so there was, there's obviously been several competitors that have gone under um, relative to us. Mm-hmm. One of them, which I'm forgetting exactly which one it was, um, but they had this idea that they were like, all right, well, you know, we just took a hundred million dollars in funding so we're going to go build, you know, 15 production facilities across the country. And that'll allow us to do same day delivery um, from our website. And they launched that in like, and they launched all 15 of them in the span of a very short period of time. I feel like that is a trap. And like one of the reasons why they went out of business is because they, um, they didn't, like the thing that you invest in at the scale that you're uh, that you are in the hopes of being at a larger scale and where that investment will pay off is you know if that's if that gap is too large then that could be a company killing uh event right so uh home chef opened we had one facility in chicago and we grew out of that facility uh we opened another a second facility in california and um 
And then within a few months after that, we grew into our third facility in Atlanta. And it was interesting to watch how those three facilities that we grew over a relatively longer period of time, um, what that experience was like, because we had a very efficient plant in Chicago. We like worked out a whole bunch of processes. And by the way, like I'm not, I'm not talking about like we invested a bunch of tech. I'm talking about like the people on the ground in those facilities worked out how to ship things, how to pack things more efficiently. And they were doing it with like paper and tape. And, you know, uh, for the longest time we were like keeping track of counts on a clipboard (laughs) outside of the dock. You know what I mean? Um, the kinds of super scrappy things that you do when you are that small, um, growing slowly or like being, being cognizant of how you are investing that money, um, how much money you're taking, what you're doing with that money, um, and having the, uh, the capability to grow in a very slow and more protracted way means that um, when we opened our second facility, it, we brought some of our best people from Chicago down to that second facility. And they were able to grow and do all of that same kind of process without much encumbrance. Um, and then we were able to take lessons back from that. My point in, in, in all of that is like those are the things that you spend your money on. Um, you spend your money on being able to, to do things um, more efficiently, being able to hire a little bit larger staff, being able to, um, you know, I, I guess another thing that we invest in is like capital equipment, like equipment that can do a thing that we can do by hand, but it does it automated, you know, that kind of stuff. And even there, we've been very conservative about how we've, how we've placed our bets there. It's been one of the reasons why the company has been able to sustain itself on very, on relatively much less investment. Uh, I want to make sure we get a chance to talk about like how COVID-19 has affected like your world and your, your business and everything. Uh, so yeah, what's that been like? Has there been a noticeable change? So you were, we were talking earlier about like finding fulfillment in your job. And um, I think that that is kind of how I would characterize the, like working at a company our size. It's crazy how, like we didn't do anything in, in, to, to, to change the world, right? Like our, our world changed around us and all of a sudden, we were considered an essential service in a um, in a pandemic. Now, all of a sudden, our efforts go from how do we acquire um, a bunch of new customers to how can we feed the most people? It's a completely different. It's like a it's like a um, mission of the company kind of change, you know. Um, and what's crazy is like we didn't. It's not like we needed the pandemic to make that kind of shift. Mm-hmm. Right. We could have made that type of shift. We could have said, like, we're going to be a nonprofit company who is focused on feeding the most people in the world. We'd be a very different type of company. Yeah. Um, It's been interesting as a it's been interesting working for a company where, like, we had one set of targets, one set of goals for the company um, and have the world change them for us. And, you know, it's interesting, like there's been a bunch of things just being in tech, right? Um, so just just like what some maybe nuts and bolts of what happened, massive influx of orders, way more than we were expecting. Um, and you saw this like across hmm. all of the uh, all of the meal kit companies um, within the span and of like in every market. Like, did you see it like a wave coming in? Yeah. Like Seattle first and then other uh, places or? Well, we saw, I mean, we saw most of it 
happen within the span of like one week. Like, wow. The company made a decision that we're going to close our office and everybody's going to work from home on a Thursday. We started working home on a Friday and then like, that's pretty much when everybody in the, you know, in the country started closing stuff down over that weekend. Um, the CEO of Kroger called the CEO of Home Chef and was like, what can you guys do to expand the amount of um, product that you're building and shipping to our retail stores? Because, like, we can't, we can't keep our facility, our, our, our grocery store shelves filled. So whatever you can do. They asked us to basically double the amount of retail output that we were doing previously. So, so by, that, by that you mean sending the kits to... Kroger owned stores, not in not individual households, right? Correct. Correct. Oh, okay. So this oh, was like the, this was the first weekend of like some of the more major shutdowns happening, right? And so like people were making massive runs to the grocery stores, doing all kinds of crazy stuff. The next thing that happened after that was the massive wave of e-commerce online orders uh, for delivery, right? Hmm. Um, we grew in that first week by fifteen percent which a company our size, we haven't grown by double-digit numbers in, or percentage points in probably three years. Wow. Um, wow. It's been a long time since we've seen that sort of like week-over-week growth. And so it got actually to the point where uh, we had to stop taking orders. And so as you can imagine, like the tech team doesn't have a roadmap for like how do you stop people from ordering? We only have roadmaps for how do you make more people order, you know? <laughs> So we had to very quickly, we had to very quickly stand up. uh, (laughs) Don't you just delete the button element? (laughs) Just, just, just uh, Just disable the form. Isn't it called just a four (laughs) Oh (laughs) four? That is not a very good user experience, Justin. (laughs) Uh, You only give every like fifth person a four Oh four. That's right. Um, so we had to be kind of creative. We had to come up with um, we had to come up with mechanisms for um, still taking people's orders. But you know, the thing that we ended up doing is pushing their first delivery out a week. So we basically moved their volume from the from the next week to the following week. And and I want to just say, like, part of the reason we had to do that is because as a business, like we are. Um, that inventory problem that you were talking about earlier, like mm-hmm. we have that same problem, right? We only procured enough, uh, you know, ingredients or whatever for, uh, uh, the size of week that we were planning to have. Uh, mm-hmm. and those orders are the size that, you know, they take weeks to get more product. And so we were scrambling to find additional product to, ad- you know, to handle the kind of additional growth that we were getting. So we needed to do so- mm-hmm. those kinds of things. We basically maxed out, um, our production. Um, one other thing is, uh, you know, again, like it's, you talk about the big companies and how they are, um, they're evil, but they, they have, they have some massive power that again, when the world shifts their focus to something Mm -hmm. more, um, more meaningful or more useful than just Mm -hmm. profit alone. Um, Mm -hmm. it's, so that level of resources is kind of amazing to see yeah. it put into action. So hmm. Kroger gave us, um, I think I'm allowed to say this. So <laughs> I, I can maybe check and make sure. But <laughs> Chris, Kro- put a marker Kro- here. <laughs> that's right. Um, Kroger basically gave us um, access to two of their facilities 
because when they when they called our CEO and said, "Hey, we need you to double your output." Um, they also said, we're going to give you these two facilities, one in Indiana and one in Wisconsin. Hmm. Um, can you stand them up? And that meant like, okay, we have to figure out, how, we have to train them in how to work. We have to get them able to ship product. Um, and this was all going to retail stuff. So they had all the shipping and logistics and stuff worked out there, I guess, already. But so, like, that would not have been possible. Most of the other companies, the meal kit companies, don't have access to um, a, a parent company that's of that size that can see this problem and say, okay, um, here is here is just a massive amount of resources that you would not be not normally be able to get access to. Hmm. Um, yeah, that's, that's interesting. On the flip side, um, another thing that we're doing here in Chicago, um, yet another thing, I guess I'm not sure if I can talk about, um, <laughs> Making deals with other other companies who are who are in the food business, but also um, kind of shut down. Um, so, for instance, there are companies that make food for um, like airlines, like the the meals that you eat on the on the airplanes. Yeah, um, those guys they've got facilities where they produce all of that food. They've got food handling experience. They're like certified by the by the states in order to do all that stuff. Um, we're making deals to to put those people into. Um, operation to be able to start producing, to doing some some of the functions. We do a whole like huh. um, portioning piece where we take raw ingredients of a, at a bulk size and turn it into the size that you need for a specific recipe. All of that stuff we can outsource to um, local companies. All of that's like a lot of why we do that too is not just because that's a good thing to do for those companies. It's also good for us because um, we need to be doing the things that you do in order to keep people away from each other in our facilities. We need to limit mm-hmm. the number of people that come into our facilities and work just to stay safe. So mm-hmm. um, it's an interesting time. And again, like I said, like the, the way that the, that the, that a situation like this just shifts your focus a little bit. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, it, well, mm. it's like a totally different, uh, like you said, you went from how can we acquire more customers to how can we feed more people. Um, that feels that feels even more than a little subtle, actually. That that that's quite a yeah. That's a pretty that's a pretty big shift. Big shift, yeah. So did it did did all of this? Like I'm I'm thinking here about like supply chain and where you're getting your your ingredients from. Did it and how you know you're you're planning like a week ahead or whatever it is um, um, a quarter. A quarter, okay. <laughs> um, so, did this did this immediately end up changing like your menu, like the available options you have, depending on like what ingredients are going to be, I don't know, out of stock sooner or? So, because our menu turns over every week, our we have basically a an almost complete turnover of our warehouse every week of what we have in our stock, right? So from that perspective, we have, like, we forecast out five weeks of, like, here's how many orders we think we're going to get in five weeks. We place preliminary orders with our suppliers, and then, like, that order gets, you know, closer and closer to real as we get closer and closer to the week that we're going to ship. So supply-wise, I think we were um, in less of a concern uh, there. I think the bigger concern for us was... um, the complexity of our operations. So we ended up pulling a bunch of menu options off of our, uh, Mm -hmm. a bunch of meals off of our menus for a couple of weeks. That was so that we could serve, uh, so that we could fulfill more orders to more customers. So like, if you imagine a, like a, um, 
what do you call it, like a conveyor line or whatever, and you've got uh, a bunch of spots for meals, um, the longer that conveyor line is, the more people you need to staff that, the more complex it is, the longer it takes for a box to travel from one side of that conveyor line to the next and get out the door. Yep. So we could increase the throughput of our of our facility by reducing the size of that line, reducing the number of possible combinations of meals that a customer could possibly order. Um, and again, that decision was made uh, under the guise of that goal, that shift. How can we how can we feed more people? We could mm-hmm. limit the nu- the number of people that we can serve, or we can limit the amount of choice that customers have and serve more. Um, this is going to sound like a kind of I don't I don't know how to say this, but like when you say feed more people, is there is the is the fundamental problem right now that people are being unfed like is can you put that in context for me like what is that how does what's the context around that so what are the reasons why people leave their house right now like you get put under a strict stay-at-home order the only reasons you leave your house are to go get food yeah so and we know that those are the riskiest activities that those people are going to be doing every day so i think that's the reason why we've seen so much of an influx in our service is not just convenience it's also um, this is one less trip to the grocery store I have to make for a lot smaller number. Maybe I can take the grocery store run that I did for two weeks and make that last for three. Like, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's that kind of thinking that I think the whole country is in right now. Um, and so that's, that's sort of like the, the way that I would characterize that. Yeah. 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 I, yeah, I, I touched a, a debit pad at Safeway four weeks ago and I still can't, I still worried about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How are you guys doing on the anxiety level? Let me just ask that because the first week of um, of all of this, I mean, I think everybody was kind of um, freaked out. But uh, mm-hmm. I mean, like I definitely went through a, a series of days there where I was totally convinced that I had it. Um, like every, mm, yeah. I was like, man, I feel like I can't breathe very well right now. What's going on? Yeah. Um, yep. You know, any any sort of headache. That's right. You're like, mm, what is this? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I have allergies this time of year anyway, and so, like, uh-huh. already, that 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 pressure on your chest where you feel like you can't breathe, that's, we, you know, you, I get that anyway. So, yeah, I, I think I'm past that a little bit, mostly because now the, the mania has passed. Like, now we're used to, uh, like, these case numbers and, unfortunately, death counts just keep going up, but we're so... At first, they were surprising, but like anything else, you get acclimatized to it. And so, I think I I'm definitely like not on Twitter all the time, just like you know. And then I also like my initial <laughs> my initial uh, thing is like, okay, I got to crunch the data too, and I just become one of those tech bros that are you know opening up Excel <laughs> and like trying to figure out the solution or whatever. So that's passed because it's like, okay, I'm not. In, scientist or an epidemiologist or whatever definitely it definitely helps to limit your exposure to news yeah and or or limit it to like one source you trust and that's it because yeah i was just like reading stuff nonstop for the first week i'm like this is this is awful this is the end of the world the the less dense urban areas our experience of this is so much different i mean we're we're under similar kind of stay-at-home orders but like people say in New York City, all you hear is ambulance sirens all night. And like here, it's just not like I've heard a few people 
you know, through the grapevine that have been hospitalized, but it's not as intense, you know, and it par- partly because our vectors are, it seems are just way, there's just way less. Like I, we have no elevators here. <laughs> so, so that, you know, <laughs> your chances of being in an elevator and somebody sneezing are just really low. Um, yeah. So that, that part has been interesting too, because at first I definitely had the, the anxiety. And then in some ways it's almost dangerous being out here because you just don't experience it. It hasn't hit yet, you know? Mm. And, um, until there's testing everywhere, then, you know, I think it's going to be, yeah, it's just going to be kind of like, okay, well now I just live in my house and (laughs) now I'm just waiting for the day when I can get tested. Really? Like, Pretty much. And even that has been weird. Like, do, do you have kids, Dave? You have any no. little juntas? No. Um, the, you know, now it's just like, at first it was almost un... Uh, like I could just couldn't stand it. Mm. And I was sad that I lost my office and sad that I, could, you know. And now it's just like, it feels like this is just our life now, right? <laughs> So, see, I think right. I think the trick is going to be: Are you able to change the exasperated nature that you said that into a more joyful one? Mm. Like, I've been thinking about this a bit lately about like what is the what is the right level of panic to continue to have mm-hmm. as this goes on? Like, we've I, we've been home for more than two weeks now. Um, we're very careful whenever we go out. Like I can reasonably say there's not a chance I've got it. And I, I am hyper vigilant about the very few opportunities that I can come in contact with somebody who might give it to me. Yeah. So now I have to find a way to like, just be comfortable in the existence that we have. Mm-hmm. And the truth is my working experience has actually gotten significantly better in ways that I don't know that I might've, um, that I might have counted on. For instance, it's so much better when someone is remote to have everybody on the team be remote. Mm, yeah. Your experience in meetings is so much better. Your experience, like the amount of communication that has increased as a result of us not being in the office has been exponential. Mm-hmm. It's, huh. it's unbelievable. Um, you know, we can all hate on Slack and the always on sort of nature of it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that, I think that there's like a, there's a positive way to turn this working environment, this, or there's a way to turn this working experience into a positive thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But it takes people thinking about it in that way. And I kind of wonder if like the longer we keep, you know, asking people, Oh, how are you doing, man? Are you, you know, everything okay? Like the more we treat this situation and people with like kid gloves around it, I wonder if we aren't prolonging that experience, which isn't to say that I want to discount the, the, the craziness of the situation, mm-hmm. but it's like, I want to get to a place where we are reacting responsibly. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, with <laughs> the appropriate amount of, 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 um, attention and concern. Yeah. Yeah. And there's certain things that this has pushed people into. Like, uh, John and I have been having way more just FaceTime calls that are personal in nature. It's just like, though it is those, Hey, how are you doing? 
And there's part of that practice that I think is just healthy and that it would be good if that continued. Um, and I, I mean, I think the other thing it's made us think of a little bit is John and I are still wrestling a little bit with like, what is our greater purpose in the world? Um, and with the company and we've experimented a little bit. We donate some of our profits to 1% for the planet. And, you know, we're excited to, like, we're both excited about podcasting and getting people's voices out there and doing all of that. But they're, they're, you know, having something like, for example, you have had this shift of, we need to feed more people. And mm, yeah. there's something big and motivating about that. And I think um, if there's a stair step of finding personal motivation, uh, it feels like John and I are looking for that next stair step, that next thing that's going to motivate us. And there's a few different forks in the road. There's a few <laughs> ways we could go without, right? Like we could say, we're going to yeah. try to hire as many people as we can. Yeah. I mean, this whole thing hasn't affected us nearly as in the way that it has affected you, Dave. Like it didn't, it didn't change our business, you know, to a different sort of direction. Mm-hmm. We're still doing the same thing. I think there's maybe a little more interest in the whole private podcasting aspect where companies are kind of keeping their employees up to date because nobody's at the office. But we didn't really have to shift necessarily and be like, oh, wow, we have to change things Mm -hmm. uh, drastically. So it's been, yeah, it's been interesting to sort of like, you know, we didn't lose our jobs. We didn't have to let anyone go. We didn't, the only thing that changes, we have to stay at home. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, and it, yeah. but I can't tell if like you guys are bummed about that. Like, if you guys would have preferred for there to have been a larger shift, so that your day to day reality and existence could be more in line with like the day to day existence of the rest of the world. I don't know. I I don't. I don't think I was wishing for that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. No. It's like the tension is more. For me, like, I'm just so thankful right now. We don't know what's going to happen. Like, again, we haven't hit, there's other waves of this that have not hit yet. Like, the unemployment rate in the United States and Canada is going to be, that is, we've never experienced something like that as a society. And so (laughs) we see the indicator, but the lagging, the results are lagging. And so... I think all of us are kind of waiting, like, when is that tsunami going to hit and how big is it going to be? And there's also this, this, this wall of consumer debt and business debt that's coming too. So that'll, that'll even be behind that. Right. And, uh, I think in some ways I'm still bracing for that, but one of the things I really like about transistor in the business we've built is that it's given us this margin. And I think part of at least my reaction to all of this is like, how can I use the margin we have right now in productive ways for society? Mm. And um, again, I think so far, the only thing we found as a company that makes sense is we're going to contribute to these bigger causes like 1% for the planet. And we also have a bit of a megaphone because we've got this podcast and other things and we want to use that as well. But 
that's kind of like my next question for myself. And then I think John and I are wrestling with it too. It's like, okay, what is our next reaction to this? If the, if a lot of the world is not okay, how do we do something about it? And in some ways it's on one hand, it's almost made it harder because we were already feeling that pressure before. Uh. <laughs> we're kind of, if, you know, if we got down about something, it would be, you know, this feeling of like, ugh, like things were already tough before societally. But, you know, maybe this will, this whole event will be a catalyst for some of these things that we care about just personally. Like, mm-hmm. you know, maybe we be, we we get some of that same spit and vinegar that David Annemarie Hansen has, uh, maybe not in the same way, but you know, um, to to start using some of our influence and margin, and uh, you know, the, whatever resources we have, to in some way impact society in a better way. But we're still searching for what exactly that is. Yeah, at the moment, it. it- still I think feels a little weird to just go about your business as if everything's the same and sort of sit down and try to write some code and add a feature or redo a feature when it's just really, really difficult to focus on that. Mm -hmm. Because you're like, what does it really matter in the grand scheme of things? Yeah. (laughs) Well, but isn't, isn't part of that just like a mental shift though? Because when you think about, when you think about, Podcast. I mean, people have been talking about how podcasts are are a good um, a good escape from reality already, and it's a thing that integrates into your life in a very um, real and easy way. Maybe more, especially when you have a commute, which uh, I understand most people don't have right now. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if there isn't like if I could just even connect a couple things from this call. Like you, Justin, were talking about wanting to help small businesses to be able to recover. Mm-hmm. The biggest thing that small businesses need to be able to recover is, um, is to create an audience that they can hold on to. The biggest thing that keeps people from, that keeps people going to Amazon instead of, you know, their local, um, whatever down the street, um, to enable the kind of future that you were talking about is, you know, people need to know to look for those, those people, mm-hmm. that person down the street. Um, mm-hmm. when it's easier to find Amazon, when it's easier, like, that, that that is the the insurmountable thing, and you guys are perfectly positioned to make a meaningful impact on that. Um, perfectly positioned to work with those um, small businesses and help them create a voice, create. And it's not just about like podcast quality or whatever. It's about what are they talking about in this time? Why are they? What are they talking about when their business is actually shut down? Um, yeah, no, it, that. I mean, that's, see, there's also this thing, that's a good reminder, because there's also this thing of um, once you're in a business and you're running it, like John and I have forgotten about a lot of the dreams we had before we launched. Oh, say more about that. Because <laughs> they've, they've faded. Well, just, you know, when we launched, before we launched, a lot of it was based on how can we empower individual creators? And we did, I mean, we were talking about, you know, how can we give a voice to businesses and things like that. And we also talked about doing a lot more, um, when, <laughs> when you're dreaming, it's like, we thought, Oh, maybe we'll produce some of our own shows. Like, we'll like, 
you know, we'll, we'll hmm. ha- hire a producer and we'll have our own, like in Slack, the, the channel for this podcast is called Our Shows. It's, it's plural because we initially thought maybe we would have more than one. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you get in it. And then, you know, day to day, you're just like helping customers. And you also see kind of the way the, the tides kind of come in naturally. And you just end up kind of responding to those things. Um, but, you know, that, again, if, 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 we, <laughs> if we were able to go on our retreat, maybe that's what we'd be, we'd be talking about is can, <laughs> we, can right. we resurrect some of those dreams yeah, and and how can we and and maybe again like the simplest thing is for us to just keep doing what we're doing. Like every time I write another knowledge base article and I create another tutorial video, I'm enabling somebody to theoretically create some audio, put it out into the world, and connect in a meaningful way with an audience. Yeah. So, but the it's 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 tricky to figure <laughs> to, to to figure that out when you're in stream, you know. Yeah, and may I don't know, John. Like you've said in the past, like like you get excited about podcasting and the tech, but you're not like. Are you, would you say you're as excited about helping podcasters or like what? How do you how do you quantify? Yeah, that? I'm excited about that part. I'm I'm not, not I'm not necessarily excited about recording more shows. That's just not <laughs> something I'm. I mean, no, like for for real though. Like I'm not as excited about that as yeah. you are. Yeah. I'm not an I'm not a natural talker. I'm so yeah, I'm not excited about that. I'm I like helping people kind of get their voice out yeah. there. I mean, there's a lot of tech to be built to enable the kind of vision that that Justin was talking about. Mm-hmm. Um even I think it was a couple episodes ago that you were talking about like how just feeling so frustrated at the fact that there are all these services and they they purport to integrate so well with each other, and in fact, it is such shit. Um, yeah. Yep. Um, all of the broken interconnectedness of that. Mm-hmm. Even if you guys took uh, put your put transistor transistor on a code freeze and spent some time with an actual business cu- like customer, small business of whatever, and um, figured out how to smooth out some of those pain points um, in as cheap and scrappy of a way. Hmm. I think that would give you a lot of um, feedback about what the landscape of these kinds of tools are and how they should, how they could fit together in a better way. How they, even if like there's scrappy ways that you could write a, uh, write an article that explains how you did that for that, that company, pull that person from that company and do an an interview with them on a podcast to talk about like all of those kinds of things Mm -hmm. that show people the way that show people how to, um, shift their mindset for when this thing is over and, c- and they are ready to come back. A slightly cynical take on that that I think John and I both have, and this is kind of like this is like the this is the the hidden question that all the platforms don't want to talk about. Right now, platforms are doing really well. Shopify's doing mm. great. Square's doing great. Uh, ConvertKit's doing great. Mailchimp's doing great. Uh, Gumroad, anything that enables people to sell something online or build an audience is doing great. Cynically, we just know that it the vast majority of those folks will not be able to create a meaningful income from that stuff, right? Like the Patreon is having a huge influx of people join 
And Mm -hmm. I don't know what the recent stats are, but you know, the last ones I saw was like something like uh, 90, 99% of Patreon or 96% of Patreon don't even make minimum wage for, you know, Mm. what they do. And so, I mean, I have, I have an optimistic take on this too, (laughs) but that that's part of the cynical take is, yeah, we want to do that. You almost have to think, and maybe it's the same for you. Like, you know, you're not gonna be able to feed everybody, but as long as you can meaningfully feed some people, that's enough. And I think sometimes what gets debilitating is this idea of it's easy to think about everybody and go, well, this isn't going to solve everybody's problems. So why should we <laughs> even bother? You know, like why, why even try if it's not going to make a huge dent? But it will. See, see, Joe, we got to have Juta on the program more often. <laughs> you're, you're talking about, you're, you're taking on the, the impact of the in-between time. And the in-between time is like the unknown. There's, like governments are struggling to deal with how they are going to handle all of this situation. Um, that's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to have is to help some number of people, right? Um, everyone's responsibility is to help some number of people and to whatever capacity you are capable. So I think that it, the way that, again, I'm going off of like just this conversation, the people you were talking about wanting to help the the future and vision that you were sort of laying out. That's not about what we do between now and when people are able to go outside their houses regularly again. It's about what happens after that. It's about how do you get those people, those businesses to thrive in that environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you got to think about the time between now and whenever that happens as your development cycle, like you now have an opportunity to build something to help those people then. Yeah. And the fact that you're in podcasting means that you you have an opportunity to show those people how to do a thing that they never thought they were good at before. Yeah, and actually when I when I framed all this stuff in terms of the next outbreak, <laughs> the next time this happens, it is easier for me to be hopeful and optimistic because uh, this stuff takes time. It takes time to build an audience. It takes time to uh, make a side income. It takes time for... Uh, you know, a regular business that's never done anything like this to get good at it. But the story that I have in my head is that I started podcasting in 2012. And that has, that starting it in 2012 and podcasting every single week and month since then has meaningfully improved my life more than any other thing I've ever done. When you look at it in a long range, a long time zone, it goes, oh, wow, you know, over eight years, this can really make a difference in somebody's life. In a, in a week, it's not going to pay your bills in a week. But the, the long view makes me think, yes, and um, podcasting isn't this thing that's just <laughs> going to, you know, grow like crazy every year and, you know, have like, we're still like a billion dollars in ad revenue last year. Like it's nothing compared Mm. to other things out there, but it's meaningful for the people who are in it. And, uh, yeah, I think that is where I get encouraged thinking that, you know, in eight years when God forbid the next bird flu hits or whatever, (sighs) that people will have, you know, something 
would be able to experience some of that benefit the way that John and I have. Yeah, that gets me fired up. So my sister um, owns a an education, like a dance education company. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say it in, in that kind of way because um, like she started in a dance studio, but she's expanded to basically teaching um, like creative arts kind of education. Yeah. Um, in, and primarily in schools, like school, the public, uh, the Chicago public school system was like one of her major clients. Um, so as soon as the schools were like, no one's coming to school anymore. My sister watched like a massive chunk of her business go away. But man, like necessity is the is the mother of invention, though. Mm-hmm. And and you're seeing this with like yoga studios and like all of these other businesses, these small businesses that relied on in person communication. They're figuring out ways of delivering their product um, virtually, delivering their product in this kind of environment, and that's great. I'm glad that we are living in a time where technology can has already built something to bridge that gap. Mm-hmm. That's great. Mm-hmm. What I am curious about and kind of hopeful for is that after this time, when they go back into their yoga studio, my sister goes back into the public schools and these programs spin back up again and run the way that they always ran before. I'm hoping that they keep some of this skill that they've built up in this time and add it to their product mix next time. This kind of like diversification, like my sister is able to have a direct impact on more people than she could in the school settings mm-hmm. because, and, and with no change in overhead, right? Like the same teacher could be teaching a class of a thousand kids. She's not doing it at that size, but she mm-hmm. could, right? Yeah. Um, that's a much different kind of way of thinking about this time. And the same is true of those yoga, those yoga studios. Um, those yoga studios are limited by space constraints and teacher constraints and all these other things. There is massive opportunity that comes from just shifting your mindset because you have to. Mm-hmm. And my hope is that people don't say, well, this is what I do just for now. This is, right? How am I going to take this forward into the future? Yeah, I feel like that. I feel like it might persist. I mean, I think this is going to go on long enough to where it's going to actually make make an impact on how people do things for a mm-hmm. while. Yeah. And, and the advantage is that that will build future resilience for the little person. The next bird flu. Yeah. The next bird flu, which is what, which does get me <laughs> fired up. I think we should leave it there on a hopeful note, right? Game. That sounds good. Sounds that good. Was, that was incredible. John Buddha, do you want to say thanks to uh, our Patreons? I do. One of which is yeah. here with us. <laughs> So as always, thanks to our Patreon supporters. Uh, we have Sophia Quintero, Diogo, Chris Willow, Mason Hensley, Borja Soler, Ward Sandler, Eric Lima, James Sowers, Travis Fisher, Matt Buckley, Russell Brown, Evander Sassy, Pradyumna Schembecker, Noah Prail, Robert Simplicio, Colin Gray, Josh Smith, Ivan Kirkovic, Brian Ray, Shane Smith, Austin Loveless, Simon Bennett, Michael Sitver, Paul Jarvis, and Jack Ellis. Dan Buddha, my brother, Darby Frey, Samori Augusto, Dave Young, Brad from Canada, Sammy Schuchert, Mike Walker, Adam Duvander, Dave Junta, Junta. <laughs> and Kyle Fox from GetRewardful.com. Uh, thanks, guys. Thanks so much for being here, Dave. This, this is awesome. This yeah. has been great. Thanks, Dave. Yeah, really great to talk to you guys. Uh, stay safe out there. Yeah, stay safe, everybody. We'll see you next week.
podcast hosting is provided by Transistor.fm. They host our MP3 files, generate our RSS feed, provide us with analytics, and help us distribute the show to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. If you want to start your own podcast or you want to switch to Transistor, go to Transistor.fm slash Justin and get 15% off your first year.